0: If you have your Bible with you, I can invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. So far, we have uh, spent four Sunday evenings looking at Colossians chapters 1 and 2. And we are actually going to leave it at that. And for those who have been uh, following the series, that means you will recognise that we've missed out the last little bit. Although we have referred to some of those verses in the last part of Colossians chapter 2. But Colossians 1 and 2 are chapters that are packed with and contain some of what has been described as the most theologically rich but conceptually tough material in all of scripture. It is mind bending, mind expanding material we have looked at. But whenever you come to Colossians 3, Paul starts to get very practical. In chapter 1 and 2 he's explained exactly who Jesus is. And he did that, or one of the ways he did that was through that incredible hymn that he encouraged the church to sing about the cosmic Christ. And he then explained how we are reconciled to God via Christ and the cross and all that that means. But in chapter 3, Paul starts to address the nitty gritty of daily Christian living. And it all gets very earthy. And in a sense, Paul seems to shift his attention from what we believe as Christians, and I know this is a reoccurring theme, but he seems to shift his attention from what we believe as Christians to how we actually live as Christians. Because belief and behaviour must be closely Aligned, There should be no glaring gaps between the two. I remember when I lived in London for a couple of years, and if you've ever been on the London Underground, you'll know that as a train, or as one of the Underground trains, the tubes, approaches the station across the loudspeaker system comes the announcement, Mind the Gap, which is a warning to be aware of the space that exists between the platform and the approaching train And as Christians, we have got to be careful to mind the gap that sometimes exists between what we believe and how we behave. And if you were here last Sunday morning, it's this whole idea of minding the gap between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And so in the first 17 verses of Colossians 3, Paul provides some very frank, straight to the point, no holds barred, practical advice on how you go about closing that gap. In other words, how to live an authentic Christian life that avoids contradiction. And I know that is the heart of many of us. And so let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. We're going to take time to read these first 17 verses. Colossians 1, or Colossians 3 verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and in knowledge in, 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 knowledge in the image of its creator, Hence there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Please take your seats. There is is so much in this, and and I realise that we could easily spend another four weeks just in those 17 verses alone. So that means I'm going to have to condense a lot of this. But the key thing that I really want us to take away from this evening is that we would grasp the importance of, as well as the challenge of, And noting the emphasis that Paul places on actually living the Christian life on a day-to-day basis. And as we start, just scan your eyes down the first four verses. And allow your mind to contemplate the sheer enormity of realising these three things. They're on the screen, but they're also in those verses. You have, as a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ, and you will one day appear with Christ in glory. Now, I I know that you could, or maybe even should, preach a sermon attempting to unpack what each of those actually means, and maybe one day we will. But the particular phrase that I want us to notice is the one that actually appears in each of those three and it's these two words. With Christ. Because the Christian life is a with Christ life. Whenever you are reconciled to God, as James explained us a couple of weeks ago, you begin to live with Christ. Last week, if you were here, we noted one of the mysteries of the gospel, Paul said, is that Christ is in you. You now live with Christ. And the thing about living with someone is that it changes your life dramatically. Ask any husband or wife. Ask any new mum or new dad. Life is radically different whenever you start sharing it with someone else. And one of the key things that Paul wants to get across in these 17 verses in Colossians 3 is that living with Christ must alter your life. It must alter the way you think. It must alter your attitude. It must alter your behaviour. And it must impact your lifestyle. And so immediately he says, the first thing that's got to change, the first thing that you need to sort out is your focus. Look at verse 1 and 2. What Paul actually says is, listen, you've got to set your hearts and minds on things above and not on earthly things. But I will guarantee you that every single one of us sitting in this church this evening knows from experience just how difficult this is to do. And we have highlighted this before, but it is so difficult to actually do this. Our heads and our hearts are generally far more focused on the physical, tangible world that we see around us. And there are what, therefore what I find really encouraging and comforting is whenever I discover that the language Paul uses here indicates that he knows this is not easy. It's never going to be easy to do this. And apparently, using two different Greek words, what Paul actually is doing is he urges us to aim at this. To keep seeking after this. To be intent on this. This is a journey we embark on. I don't think you waken up one day and you discover that, actually, do you know something? I live my life with my mind and my heart set on things above and not on earthly things. Paul knows, listen, yes, you live in the real world. And therefore, this is something you've got to really, there's got to be an intentionality about this. You've got to really be committed to this. Paul knows that even as Christians, it's so easy to get caught up in the here and now. He knows it's so easy to lose perspective and become preoccupied with this material world. Paul is acutely aware that temptation still tempts us. Lesser motives still attract us. And things which we actually can see appear far more real and far more appealing than things we cannot see. Things above. And so Paul's under no illusion about this. And I know that neither are we. But sometimes, whenever you hear a phrase like that or read a phrase like that, you think, This is what it's got. I've got to be there. And Paul realizes that getting there is tough, it's a process. It's something you've got to work at. something you've got to keep revisiting. But what Paul is also implying is, although it's not easy, it is possible. And it's possible because you do live with Christ. Christ is in you, and it's because he is in you that this is possible. Which is something Bennett has already referred to in his socks and tennis ball illustration. But because we have Christ in us. And so what Paul then does, or one way you can look at this is that Paul begins to actually flesh out what it means to set your hearts and minds and things above. Because again, I'm, I'm one of those people, I need it to be practical. I, I need it to be earthed out for me. And I really love this passage because I believe that Paul does earth it out for us. And in a nutshell, here is, here is the rest of the sermon. okay? Because here is what is involved in living the Christian life, the with Christ life. You've got to get rid of 11 things... You've got to put on seven items of clothing. You've got to live at peace. You've got to be thankful. You've got to immerse yourself in this. And you've got to express worship in all you do. That's it. Okay? So if you want to go now, you've you've heard it. But I need to unpack this a little. So have a look, starting then at verse 5, really. Because Paul appears to begin this section by contradicting himself. Look at verse 3. Because what Paul has said is, you have died. And if you glance up at verse 20 of chapter 2, he said exactly the same thing. He said, since you died with Christ. But now in verse 5, he's telling the Colossian Christians to put some things to death. So have they died or have they not? Well, what Paul actually says is, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In other words, because you have died with Christ, and according to verse 1, because you've been raised with Christ, you now can do this. It is possible to put all these things to death that I'm about to list. All these characteristics of ungodly behaviour. If Christ hadn't died, and if you hadn't died with him, then you'd be powerless to deal with this stuff I'm going to refer to. In fact, trying to kill it off would be a waste of your time. But because Christ did die, and you have died with him, and because you have identified with him in his crucifixion and in his resurrection, you can take this stuff on. You are not fighting a losing battle, which is often the impression that so many of us give when it comes to some of this stuff. But before we look at the actual list, Look at the strength of language Paul uses as he begins to talk about this. In verse 5, he says, put this to death. In other words, he says, execute this. In verse 8, he says, rid yourselves. And what he means is, I want you to dump this stuff like rubbish. And in verse 9, he says, since you have taken off, and what is implied there is a discarding of dirty clothing. And the imagery is strong because, because Paul realizes you've got to be ruthless. Absolutely ruthless about this process. So let's look at the list. Well, there are actually two lists of five. You can follow this in the text. And then Paul adds an extra one at the end to give us our 11 things. But the two lists address two specific areas of behaviour. Two very important areas of human life. Sex and speech. Two areas which provide great potential for good, but also for evil, And in both cases Paul offers a list of practices which are abuses rather than proper uses of these two gifts that God has given to us. And that's why Paul says, listen, there should be no gentle, no half-hearted approach to these things. Don't even think about toying about with them. Don't even think about toying about with these things on a continuing basis. And so the first list uh, relates to sexual behaviour And here are the things that Paul says you've got to brutally execute. Sexual immorality, which originally referred to relations with a prostitute, but later came to include any genital sexual activity outside of marriage. He says, brutally execute impurity, which particularly referred to any indecent sexual act or thought. Lust, uncontrolled sensual craving. Those leering looks... Where you allow your mind to wreak havoc with your thought life, possibly you've got to brutally execute this. Evil desires—I mean, desire in itself can be a good thing—but it turns sour whenever, uh, whenever what we want is blatantly wrong, or whenever our desire. Is placed in other things than what God wants us to have as desires. And then greed. And in the context here this presumably refers to sexual greed. And what is interesting is that Paul labels greed as a form of idolatry. And that's because sexual fantasies are off limits for the Christian. Not simply because of the actions they may produce. But because they are in themselves a way of worshipping a false god. And I realise that whenever you come to a subject such as this, this is a sensitive subject to speak about in a context like this. And that's why I said what I said this morning. The issue of sex is a minefield. And yet its relevance in first century Asia Minor and its relevance in 21st century Western Europe cannot be denied. We live in a culture that bombards us with sexual images, sexual messages, Sexual innuendo on a daily basis. And therefore reflecting or promoting or living by God's values whenever it comes to the whole issue of sex is an incredibly challenging thing for any and every Christian. And anybody who says otherwise I honestly think are deluding themselves. And Paul's explicit advice here, it impacts what we watch, what we read, what we listen to, where we browse and what we do. And this is where it tends to get very up close and personal because Paul is really saying, Listen, if you are entertaining any of this behaviour, then you must and you can kill it off. And you must kill it off immediately. Otherwise, the glaring gap between belief and behaviour, will continue to widen. And Paul then turns his attention to speech. And again, this is such a relevant subject. And in a sense, Paul is just as concerned with the sins of speech as he is with sexual sin. Which is interesting because in today's church, it seems that we treat one more seriously than another. As Tom Wright suggests, it would be good if we got the balance right. And here are the five things that Paul says you must get rid of when it comes to your speech. Anger. Quick, uncontrolled temper. Rage. A passionate outburst of anger. Malice. This desire... To get back at someone. Any form of spiteful behaviour. Slander. Where you speak maliciously of another human being. Or where you gossip behind their backs. And then filthy language. I'm not entirely sure what to say about that. And in verse 9 Paul adds one more. Lying. Blatant lies, half-truths, white lies, exaggeration and if we are serious about living the with Christ life, not just believing it, but actually living it, then what we say and how we say what we say matters we really have got to take this seriously, I honestly believe the way that we speak to one another, the way we speak about one another It's very important. And if any of this type of speech exists in our lives, then Paul says, dump it. Rid yourselves of it. And that's tough. It's tough to address these two lists of 11 things, it requires commitment. And actually the crucial aspect of this is our willingness. Derek Tidbull, who will be here next week, has said this. The primary problem for most Christians in forsaking vice and developing virtue is not our inability to change. We can change. Christ is in us, with us. But it's often our unwillingness to change. And in many ways it boils down to this. Are we willing to deal with that stuff as part of our discipleship process and are called to holy Christ life, Christ honouring living? Am I willing to? I can do this. But am I willing to? Now the danger of, of stopping at that point in Colossians 3 is that it can reinforce, and I know what some of you may think, it can reinforce the idea that Christianity is all about the things you don't do and shouldn't do. And so Paul then goes on to explain how it's not just about what you get rid of, but it's also about what you put in place of these vices. And we all know that there are some Christians who pride themselves in what they don't do. And Northern Ireland's brilliant for that. But it's also crucial that none of us miss the next list of qualities and virtues that Paul says have now got to characterise your lives. Okay, as Christians, you should be known as some of this stuff that you don't do. You're not given to passionate outbursts of rage and anger. You shouldn't be. All of those things should not. But here are some things that should characterise your lives. And from verse 12, Paul begins to stress the importance of Christian character. We live in a society that has blurred the difference between character and personality. Personality has to do with style and image. And we are far more preoccupied with those in the 21st century than we are in character. Which is to do with the moral worth of a person and the enduring qualities of virtue which belong to them. Paul is not interested in developing our personalities, but he is interested in deepening our character. In fact, what Paul longs is that we would reflect the character of Christ. And therefore, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So this is directed straight to the church. That is our identity. And our identity needs to shape our behavior. We are God's chosen people. We are holy. We are dearly loved. You've got to see yourself through those lenses. Because whenever you see yourself through those lenses, that is your identity, and your identity then shapes your behavior. If you think you're no good, then you'll act as if you're no good. Whereas if you can see yourself in this light, then you can begin to act in this way. And so Paul says, in light of your identity, which should shape your behavior, kick yourself out with these five virtues. Compassion. Which again, if you were here last Sunday morning, is in a nutshell, love in action. It's not about feeling sorry. It's not about having pity. It's about love in action. Kindness. One of the best definitions of kindness I've ever come across is treating others as God has treated you. With mercy and with grace. Humility. It's about being, again, looked at a few Sunday mornings ago, others-centred, not self-centred. Gentleness, quite a confusing word, but emotionally well-controlled. Patience, the one that, that so often I know I really struggle with. And then Paul says in verse 13 that we are to forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And remember that this is addressed to the church. But the problem is that the church is made up of people. People on a journey. People who mess up. People who get it wrong. And therefore as we embark on this journey with people in the church. We will hurt one another. We will get disappointed with each other about some of the things that we do. Some of our behaviour will disappoint one another. The fact that we do lose it at times. The fact that we are not known for the... We will get frustrated with one another. And the only way, Paul says, for Christians to deal with this in a church context is by forgiveness. We have to forgive one another. Otherwise, what happens is you end up offended, bitter and judgmental. And those things wreck Christian fellowship. And that is hard and I I know it's hard and when it comes to forgiveness there are so many issues involved in that. But if anything Paul then spells out the reason we do this. And it's in the second half of verse 13. We forgive because God has forgiven us. God is not asking us to do something he hasn't already done. And Paul then appears to end this by saying that over all these virtues you've got to put on love. The basic all-purpose garment that every Christian simply must wear. Never leave your house without it. Because love holds all of those things together and in place. But Paul doesn't actually finish there. Because he says there are two more important qualities that all Christians should display. Peace and thankfulness. And verse 15 He stresses how as members of one body we're called to peace. And again, addressing the church. And I I think it must break God's heart whenever Christians fall out. Whenever there is breakdown, there is division. We are all different. We are. There is a diversity of thought and opinion on many issues even within this room. But in the midst of it all, Paul says, live in peace with one another. And secondly, we must be thankful. I I don't know if you ever meet people, and I'm sure there's nobody here who falls into this category, but do you ever meet people who just constantly complain? They've always something to gurn about. Nothing is ever right. And I think Paul urges us to model a grateful approach to life. Be thankful. Something that he would say time and time again in his letters to other churches we're almost through but with all of this it's a massive challenge because it's not always easy to be thankful particularly in a culture that is prone to complain it's not always easy to live at peace with even other Christians it's not easy to love it's not easy to display all those virtues and it's really really hard to get rid of those 11 things especially when so many of those 11 things are very appealing And so Paul highlights two essentials. Word and worship. If we're going to live this life, then we must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. A key verse for us as a church, particularly in fellowship groups. We have got to be people who are seeped in the teaching of Christ. And in the words of this book. LeRoy Eames puts it like this. We must get into the word and the word must get into us. We get into the word by hearing it preached and reading it, studying it, memorizing it and we get into the word or we get the word into us through meditation. And again, something of stress time and time. The importance of God's word, we cannot overstress that. But if we are going to live the with Christ life then we need to ensure that the words of Christ are dwelling within us richly. That we know them. That we're engaging with them and we're living them. And secondly, we must worship via songs, yes, and all of that. But actually, according to verse 17, it's our whole lives. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, we have to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Every moment of every day, should be an act of worship. This is one of those totally comprehensive statements that makes it clear that there needs to be integrity in our lives. That nothing, absolutely nothing should be outside the influence of our faith. Christ must be Lord of whatever we do and whatever we say. Christ must be given access to every single area of our lives. There can be nothing I do say, think about this week, that excludes Christ. And if we appreciate that all is worshipped and all can be worshipped, then that will or that should profoundly affect our behaviour when it comes to sex, when it comes to speech. You have been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. One day you will appear with Christ in glory. In the meantime, set your hearts and minds on things above, not on earthly things. How do you do that? Get rid of 11 things, execute those 5, dump those 6, put on those 7 items of clothing, immerse yourselves in God's word and recognise that everything you do is an act or can be an act of worship and see it in that light. And may God help us.